another stunning edition of one of the best podcasts you know, the Living Jewishly Podcast. Is that the name of the podcast? It is <laughs> as of this very second, but it might be changed by the time you're listening to this because we have a new podcast name. What is that name? If you listen to our last episode, you uh, you may know it. Sorry if you weighed in and told us not to change the name. Oh, man. Because You're giving it away. You're giving it with away. The name change, which is TRTM. They're rabbis and they're married. They're rabbis and they're married after Jeffrey Baldinger's famous now tagline on our theme song. So look forward to the change, new cover. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. We are excited to be here with you today. My name is Rabbi Marcus and. I'm Rabbi Rachel. And we are excited to be joined by yet another rabbi today in our local Twin Cities community here, uh, a really great peer of ours who we greatly respect and love to work with. And why don't you introduce yourself? I am Adam Stocksbilker, and I'm a rabbi at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, yeah. So that is the the Reform Synagogue that is uh, about, what, five minutes away from here driving? Yeah. Ten minutes? Right here in St. Paul with us. It's It's basically you and the governor live right next to each other, right, you know? It was a big deal when uh, Rabbi Plow put Mount Zion on the avenue with the great churches up to the state capitals. So the Jews had arrived in Minnesota. I love it. I love it. If any visitors find their way to St. Paul, definitely put a visit to Mount Zion on your list. The architecture is historic and beautiful. There's stunning Jewish art. It's really a, a destination to come see. Yeah, oh, it was amazing the first time I walked into there. And my, my dad wants, my dad loves going too, cause he's, my, my parents are actually Reformed Jews and, and, and they love Gunther Plout. They're very big Gunther Plout fans. And so they kind of fanboy when they go there and enjoy that. So. I'm not sure your dad would describe himself as a fanboy. Of- <laughs> I don't think my dad knows what that means. Okay. He doesn't speak the millennial language. <laughs> anyway, so how y'all doing? We're doing well. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing great. I'm excited. Shavuot is a week away, so revelation is at hand. It's at hand. Hopefully we don't sleep through it. According to the Midrash, right, we have to stay awake for it. Shavuot is certainly at hand, and the spring is upon us here in Minnesota. It is beautiful outside. This is basically the beautiful season. The mosquitoes, which are called the local... Is it what is it? the local bird of the state bird of Minnesota? The state bird of Minnesota, which is the mosquito, is not arrived upon us yet, quite yet. Probably tomorrow or something like that. After all this rain, and it is gorgeous here. This is like the beautiful. This is the best time in Minnesota. It's so nice right now. It's really stunning. We were actually driving the other day, and we were like, "Oh yeah, this is why we put up with the winter because we were driving <laughs> over, I think, the Mendota Heights Bridge, and it was just so green, so lush, so beautiful." We're like, "Oh right, now we remember why yeah. why people put up with the winter here." Well, I remember we fr- we first got here. We first got to here, and we were like. It's like we're living in L.A. here. It's wonderful. It's just beautiful. And we, came, we came to visit in May. <laughs> yeah. You guys are definitely newbies. It's the Mendota Bridge, but that's good enough. Thank you. The Mendota is Bridge. That tr- it's not the Mendota Heights Bridge. No, no, no. Just the wow. Mendota Bridge, but it is absolutely stunning when you see that first green and then just everywhere coming on the trees. It's gorgeous. It's Incredible. so true. It's Incredible. so green here. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Okay. So wait. So it's Shavuot. Shavuot is coming, and we have a special topic for Shavuot because Shavuot is the the holiday that celebrates the giving of Torah, giving of the Torah. 
and the revelation. And so, our topic for today, I entitle it, Torah from Heaven. Torah mina shamayim. I feel like it should be Torah from heaven, question mark. That's really the topic. Well, you don't know if it's a question mark or not, Rachel. <laughs> it's it's supposed to be, you know, you don't know. <laughs> Very creative. Anyway, so our our topic for today is, is Torah from heaven? The, the, the understanding in, in traditional understanding of Judaism is that Torah is from heaven. Torah is from God. And we're going to talk about what that means and what it could mean, um, what it means to us and we also want to each talk about, you know, our personal relationships with Torah, what Torah means to us, um, why we sort of got into it in the first place. And so hopefully we'll be able to, to talk about all those things and it'll be a great discussion, I think. And I feel like it's a really important conversation because we hear a lot as rabbis, you know, people will say, well, I, I don't believe in the Torah because I believe in science or I don't believe in, I'm not religious because I believe in modern science. And so I think that it's a, you know, this is an important question of what do your rabbis believe? Do your rabbis believe that every word of Torah was written by God? And if not, then how do they reconcile being a religious person in the world while also being fully immersed in the world and being, of course, believers in in modern science and historical data and and all of the things that, that we certainly believe in? Yeah. I mean, it's a really, really important question, and there's there's really a lot of opinions out there and a lot of different ways to look at it, and hopefully this will be opening. I mean, the thing for me that always gets me, I, I can't tell you how many bar mitzvah students that come into the, my, you know, we, I learned with them before, their bar mitzvah, to write their Devar Torah, and they say, you know, Rabbi, I'm sorry, I, I can't be Jewish. I don't believe the world was created in six days. I'm like, and, and they expect my face to drop. I'm like, they expect me to be like, what? How dare you? And I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe we should be doing better in educating our children. But, but yeah, so that's uh, hopefully what this topic is, is, is somewhat about. Any reflections before we get into it? Uh, just simply that if we're talking science and Torah, science is ask, answering the question how, and Torah is answering the question why. And that is one of my basic ways of saying how they can reconcile, live together. Six days of creation tells me why I should be living in this world, not how it came to be. hundred percent. Yeah, I love that. I really, and I really appreciate that. Asking different questions. So that's certainly what I think Rabbi Artson, uh, Brad Artson, talked to us a lot about at Ziegler. Yes, a hundred percent. And so we should definitely have both. Are great. Anyway, let's get into it. So I want to start talking about first our personal journeys with Torah. I'm guessing, as rabbis, we all like Torah, right? I'm guessing. I know you like Torah, Rabbi Rachel. I'm guessing, Rabbi Adam, you like Torah as well. Why do you like Torah? How'd you get into the whole Torah thing? <laughs> I will start by saying, you know, I don't know a time when I didn't love learning. And when we talk about Torah, what do we even mean? I mean, that's another question which we'll get into. Are we talking about the five books? Are we talking about all of Jewish learning? There's a conversation in Reform Judaism that says it's um, our ongoing conversation with God. And it's the manifestation of that. And so I have always loved learning. And when it, I think I fell in love with it was when I realized it was not something I was reading about somebody else, but about myself. Mm. And when I realized it was my story and I was connecting to people from around the world throughout time and that I could have a conversation with them through the interpretation of the same story and read my life into their lives, that's when I all of a sudden made this cosmic sense to me, and yeah. it felt part of my heart. 
So when was that for you? Was that rabbinical school? Was that while you were a rabbi? It was during college, um, and I and it started with my first time in Israel, with which was in um, my after my first year of college, and it was five weeks in Jerusalem studying sacred space from different religious perspectives because we were not all Jewish in that group, and digging the land in an archaeological dig in Sipporin to the east to the west rather no east of Haifa and it's where we've dug up the Mona Lisa of the Galilee and it was that part that it felt like it was the beginning of my story because we had somebody there bringing all the texts um, the rabbinic texts that related to what we were digging up and all of a sudden it all started connecting Mm. wow that's so beautiful that you had this like tactile like connection to it there in the land that's beautiful I love that yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of connecting to people. Like, it's the Torah is actually a way of connecting to people throughout the generations and connecting yourself to those people, which I really like. Rabbi Rachel. Yeah, I mean, I, I my journey with Torah also kind of took shape at that same type of formative age of high school, college. Um, uh, I think I've spoken on the podcast before about how incredibly important my high school experience was at a at my Jewish high school, um, and that was my first experience with Talmud. And I think that really changed my understanding of Torah and my understanding of my relationship with Jewish text. Um, up until then, it had been kind of an elementary understanding because I was literally in elementary school. <laughs> what my what my understanding of you know Jewish text and Torah is stories and kind of mythologies of our people. Um, but then you delve into Talmud and it's like, if it's your first, if when you open your first staff of Talmud, it's like nothing you've ever studied before. Like you think you know how to study Jewish text, oh, and then you yeah. open Talmud and you're like, what is, you know, what is this amazing conversation? Similar to what Rabbi Spilker was saying, what's this amazing conversation that I'm being invited into and invited to be a part of? Um, and I think that was when I first really, for me, it started, um, we've also spoken about this before, about how Rabbi Marcus um, kind of yearns after the spiritual and esoteric and I'm much more cerebral and intellectual. And, and I think that's true of my love of learning too, that it, my love of Talmud started because it was kind of like an intellectual puzzle of you have all of these words. It seems like it's missing half the words in every sentence and you have to try and figure out like what is this? What is this actually saying? Oh, what are we talking about so here? Oh and God. it's just the best feeling in the world, that aha moment. The worst feeling in the world. <laughs> it's, but the best feeling in the world, that aha moment, when you finally get it, when you are unpacking all of these seemingly random words that are put together in Aramaic, and all of a sudden you have that light bulb moment of, oh my goodness, I get it. I get what it is that they're trying to say. Um, so that kind of feeling was my first like taste of the nectar of, um, of so, Torah. So what I'm getting from you is the reason you like Torah is because you like to win. <laughs> it's true. It is. It's that feeling of like, oh my gosh, I get this. But then I think to, to what Rabbi Spilker was saying, I get this, but it's not just an any this. It's not, you know, I solved the New York Times crossword. It's I get this. I get this part of this conversation of my people um, that now I'm inv- being invited into and to be a part of. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's that's beautiful. No, I definitely, I could definitely connect with that. Um, I just don't have those moments as much as you <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah you connect with that uh rabbi Ab? absolutely yeah and it's something it's the puzzle and i realize that not everybody has that way of insight into it and it always surprises me when people don't see the all the underlying connections and the questions that are hidden below the surface but when you can reveal it 
then you've, you're part of this um, secret code that really is gorgeous. Yeah. And oh. I, I love that you use the word reveal because that is what it feels like. It feels like an ongoing revelation, which we'll talk about a little bit later about was revelation once or is it ongoing? But I think that's exact. That word is perfect. You, you are revealing this ongoing revelation as part of your study. Oh, I love that. Reveal and revelation. That was good. I like that. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I feel the same way. And um, maybe that goes a little bit to my story as well. Um, you know, I, I, maybe I've said this on the podcast before, but just always felt like something was missing in the world. Like, the world is a very strange place, and I always felt a little strange in it. Um, and I always felt there must be something secret, there must be something I don't know that connects everything together and, and makes it sort of make sense. And, and for me, in an early age, that was God. Um, and I, I, if there was anything that connects it together, it must be God or whatever we call God. So um, I, I was at a very early age, a pursuit of God um, and, and, and really divinity um, and unif- unifying agent within all things. Um, and I remember I, I, I was with my rabbi. Um, I grew up in a reform shul, a wonderful uh, rabbi, Rabbi Abner Bergman, passed away about a decade ago, but he was an amazing rabbi. And I remember walking out of services and I was really bored in services one day because prayer was super boring to me as an elementary school student or a middle school uh, person. And I, so I took out the red bound, uh, the humash, the plout humash uh, afterwards, uh, after, uh, and I started reading the stories inside instead of praying. I'm like, wow, these stories are actually pretty good. I like reading. And I said to the rabbi, I thought I was really smart. You know, I really like this book. <laughs> I really like this. This is a good story book. And then he, he leaned over to me and said, everything all of life's answers are in this book. That's what he said to me, and I'll never forget it. And I was, like, chilled at that moment. And maybe it was hyperbole, like, I don't know, but I, I believed it. I really did, and um, I, I think I still believe it in some ways. And the pursuit of Torah and the pursuit of learning is, like, how, connecting all the pieces of life together into this great, beautiful painting and, and this thing that makes sense. And it, Torah makes the world make sense to me. So I really, I really appreciate it, and I think that's why... I, I almost like feel sick sometimes when I don't learn because it really does connect everything to me and the world sort of falls apart without it. It's this like essential glue of the world for me. So yes, 100%. And, and maybe I'm more mystical about it. Certainly, I'm definitely a very right brain person and, are, and think of it in a very artistic way maybe, but it's 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 who I am. So I, mean, um, I, I do yeah. think in, a, in another podcast, our last podcast we did was you and I studied a piece of Pirkei Avot together, but I think that we should study maybe some of the more typical but seemingly mundane parts of Talmud, which is like, from what time can you say the Shema in the morning? And is this piece of clay pure, impure? Kind of these really mundane things. Because when you're describing Torah, I think people are probably imagining that it's all like some new age philosophical, you know, like that it's bringing you to this level. What it um, isn't. When in actuality, it, it's de- it's dealing with like the very mundane aspects of ancient Israelite life. And, and I think it would be really interesting for people to kind of see, well, how do we take, how do you get all of that from the actual words on the page? I think would be a really good conversation for us. In our next podcast, is this oven pure or impure? (laughs) Find out. (laughs) And Rabbi Marcus, it sounds like, I mean, like there's this real ache that you feel for the study. And if you don't have it, it's, it's literally like the tree of life. It gives you life. Yeah. I really relate to the teaching that, that tours like water. Um, and, and the sages actually, 
created a system. We read Torah on Monday and Thursday on Shabbat because so that we never have more than three days or so that we don't have Torah in our life. And I really relate to that teaching um, because I, and, and that's the amount of time you would obviously need to drink water, right? Yeah, at least every three, at, at, at very, 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 very least every three days, right? And I really relate to that teaching because, I mean, Rabbi Rachel knows very well, uh, nothing makes me in a worse mood when I miss studying. Like, I just, I, it's almost like, you know, the way some people are about exercise or the way some people are about whatever it is, I or yoga or something like, I, I cannot, I cannot miss it. And it, sometimes it's been hard, it's a hardship for me because it's like, like, I, I just, sometimes you have to miss it, right? Sometimes you have, and, and I don't respond as well as I would like to to that. And something, it's kind of one of the things I'm working on. But, but yeah, it's definitely part of my relationship. Can I just add that it's, it's interesting to hear that to, to, from that direction. For me, I get as much joy just knowing that Ezra instituted Torah on Mondays and Thursdays because of the market days in the 5th century BCE. And I just love learning the history and the connections. And for me, that is Torah too. Yeah, I mean, the question about around history and its relationship to Torah is obviously a pregnant one, especially as conservative Jews, we call our movement positive historical Judaism. But I think as Reformed Jews, you also believe as a positive historical Judaism as well, um, you know, in, in, in sort of uh, looking at, at Jewish text through history and it's affected by history, not just by, you know, a one-time revelation on Mount Sinai. So, yes, 100%. And I mean, I think that'll be interesting to delve into of, is that relationship with history challenging to the Torah or is it? enhancing to your understanding of Torah. And if I can just give away one piece of it, for me, clearly it is enhancing because it says that those people back then are the same as I am today. And if I don't understand what I'm feeling right now, I cannot have any insight into what they were feeling then. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that the most essential truths about human beings have not changed, have they? I agree. But yet, history does matter, right? So so that's going to be something interesting, 100%. Well, without further ado, it, I mean, I, I, we all love this thing, right? And we all think it's something really, really special. But the question is, is it divine, right? Does it come from God, right? Because that's the claim of the Torah. The Torah is that it was revealed by God at a time and place on Mount Sinai. So what I want to go into is the traditional view. I, I, I see that I'm air quoting right now. So because they're saying something, what is the traditional view is probably uh, anachronistic. What is the tradition? There's always been a plurality of different views on this issue. But if I was going to just read the literal version of the text and the story of the Torah um, and tell you and, and say factually, historically what it was, right? So the Torah narrates, right, that we receive the Torah on Mount Sinai or the Ten Commandments, whatever you say. The rabbinic understanding of that is that on Mount Sinai on that day, we didn't just receive the Ten Commandments, but, but Moses actually received um, the whole entire five books of Moses, the whole entire thing we call the Torah with a capital T, right, the actual five books. And the rabbinic understanding is is not only did we receive, and a lot of people don't understand this, but not only did we receive the written Torah, but we also received something called the oral Torah, right? And the oral Torah was what was given to uh, Moses over the 40 days. Because like, if he was just given the Torah as a written, like how long does it take to give someone a book? Not long, right? You just like the book, dude, right? Like, here's the Torah, right? But what took so long on Mount Sinai for 40 days was actually Moses being revealed by to by God, the whole entire oral Torah as well, that alongside the written Torah was an oral Torah, 
oral traditions that were given to Moses of actually how to apply the, the general lessons of the Torah in actual life. And, and those oral lessons were never meant to be written down. They were meant to be passed down from generation to generation. And the rabbis say that this was passed on from generation to generation, from Moses to Joshua to the elders to the prophets to the, this is narrated in the first chapter of Perkei Avot, if you ever want to read this, and finally given to the rabbis, the men of the great assembly. Unfortunately, there weren't women in it. And eventually, it got down to a famous rabbi named Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince. And Judah the Prince uh, saw that people were forgetting this oral tradition. Um, there was a lot of oppression at the time by the Roman government in around 200 CE, and he was really afraid that um, you know they were going to forget this oral Torah. So what they did was, what he did was he wrote it down in the form of the Mishnah. I'll say he did this in Sipori, which is where I had that archaeological dig. <laughs> it all comes back together. Gets back to Sipori. <laughs> Indeed. Exactly, 100%. So Rabbi Yudanesi writes down the Mishnah. To the chagrin, by the way, of a lot of people, this was a very big, this is a very kind of radical act to write down something that was only supposed to be oral. That became what is the Mishnah, and then the commentary around that and the discussion around that became the Talmud and eventually also the Midrash as well, I would argue, um, or at least some of the Midrash. Um, and that ended up getting, the oral Torah ended up getting written down as well. So the idea or the traditional claim is all that stuff, so meaning the whole, all the ideas in the Talmud that are contained, all the stories, everything written there, as well as the five books of Moses, was all given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Okay, this is the traditional view. Now, this is a, I find it to be a little bit problematic if you're going to factually accept this for a whole manifold of reasons. Okay, so I'm going to go through some of them very, and again, I'm not going to prove everyone because, you know, we don't want to spend all our time on this, and we certainly can, but just very, very quickly. Okay? And if I can just yeah. say, before you start, which is just to say that the five books themselves never make this claim, and you said it well, it was the rabbinic mindset and it's a worldview that claims this. Yeah, 100%, right. You never in the Torah does it say the whole entire Torah was given, at least explicitly, in a simple sense in the way we read text, um, right? Was it explicitly said the whole entire Torah was given? Exactly, 100%. So what are the problems with this, right? The problems with the story, um, and just to start, is that, well, first of all, much of the story of the Torah happened after the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai, Right, so like when it, the, the the Exodus is uh, the the giving of the Torah is in the twenties uh, in in the in the Exodus, right, in Parshat Yitro, and then we have like most of the Torah, like is it almost uh, more than half of it still is to come in the Torah, right? So why all of a sudden? How could all this the future stories and the transgressions of the Jewish people, the all these stories that happen with Balaam and Balak and the spies and all this stuff? How could have this all? been already given, I mean, you could say God prof, God knew that it was already going to happen, but then you have problems with free will, and then it, 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 it's just, it's kind of strange, okay? Number one. Number two, there are anachronistic elements within the text. So this, this, is, is, this is always a big one in rabbinical school when you get to this part mm. of, uh, of your studies of Tanakh. Yes, so this the, one's good. <laughs> the idea that some of the things in the Torah we're not actually the case of the time period that the Torah claims to be from. So, for instance, there's a, a famous line that talks about the Canaanites as Hayabar, as they were in the land, which seems to imply that the Torah was written afterwards, and they are looking backwards at a time when the Canaanites were then in the land. Um, that always blows a lot of minds of rabbinical students. Yeah. Too soon to mention Ibn Ezra at this point, which is, he looks at this line and a few others, and he just simply, even though he couldn't say it explicitly, says, those who know, know. Right. Wink, wink. And who is Ibn Ezra, for our listeners? 
12th century commentator from Italy. Yes, yes. Really, really one of the most important commentators on the Torah, um, kind of accepted by everybody. Um, and uh, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to come out and say it, right? But uh, yeah, I love that. Part. Winks towards it. He winks. He winks. And then, of course, the cow. I love the camels too. That that this is this is fun. So Eliezer is, is told supposedly riding a camel to find a bride for Isaac um, in the story of Genesis, and we know that camels didn't exist at this time at this in this area of the world. That the, camels were introduced into the Middle East at a much later point in history. So we know that camels didn't exist at this point. So like stories like that, can, we can tell that like the writers were writing from a later point of view. Can I share my favorite one, which is pants in Leviticus? The priests are wearing pants, but pants were not invented until. Told they were in exile in Babylon. Really? I didn't know that one. Dr. Sperling's favorite one, Michnesheim. Yes. I failed his class, so that's a different story. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to tell you that one another time. Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) My trials and tribulations. Okay. And then, of course, we have biblical archaeology, right? Which is, I was was talking before we, I think this is before I pressed the record button, um, is that... My, the first class I took when I started, I first started in Reform Rabbinic School at Hebrew Union College, and we had this professor, I, I just know his first name was David, okay? But there were a lot of Davids in, as professors, and he, he looked a lot like Indiana Jones, which is awesome because he was an archaeologist, and he comes in and he says, the Exodus story never happened, right? And of course, that's a little bit of a hyperbole, we don't really know if it happened or it didn't happen, but we have no really good archaeological evidence that, that any of... The Exodus story happened. We haven't found it yet. And it's very, very, uh, would be very strange if we did find it because to f- you, you, you had 600,000 people traipsing through the desert. You would find some sort of archaeological remains relatively easily, according to archaeologists, and we have not find, found any of this. So a lot of the stories don't work archaeologically, um, and so that is also an issue as well. We also have the lateness of the book of Deuteronomy, right? And we can actually tell through linguistic analysis that the, that the words themselves are from a later origin point, especially the book of Deuteronomy. And even according to the, 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 uh, the Bible itself, King Josiah or one of his priests found it in the treasury or somewhere. Oh, it was a lost book of the Torah. But it seems to represent a much later theology than the one found in the books of Genesis through Numbers. So we see that it's later. And then finally, you know, so there, there have been many um, sort of theories on how the Torah was written. One of the most famous ones is the documentary hypothesis about four different sources or four different groups of authors who wrote the Torah as like sort of a patchwork. There's a lot of disagreement about this, about how it exactly happened. But that there was like these four different sources of the Torah and that they were sort of smushed together at some point by some later editor. Um, and these four sources have very different theologies and very different historical agendas um, and everything like that and come from different geographical regions in Eretz Israel. But regardless, right? And then I would say, lastly, the last thing is like, if you actually read the oral Torah, right, and you read the you know pieces of the Talmud and the Midrash, there's a lot of like really crazy, weird stories in there. Just like, just like really, really, really weird stuff. That like, it, even when looking at the Midrash, it's obvious when you're looking at it that the rabbis meant this not to be taken literally. So many of their Midrashim and so many of their, it's so obvious that they're not giving the simple sense. They even say, this is an interpretation, and now I'm going to give you the simple read, which is completely different than the interpretive read. So 
how can they both, you know, have actually happened, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. And for all these reasons, to say that the Torah, in, in the big sense, whether you're talking about the written Torah or the oral Torah, is all historically, factually accurate and given to Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, in its words, in its exact condition, is probably not true. I mean, there's another one that you didn't include, which is the beginning of Genesis, right? That the Torah itself seems to have multiple narratives of the same moment of how were human beings created? Were they, were, was woman created out of Adam's body? Were they created simultaneously? Like what, you know, even at the very, very beginning, we seem to have differing accounts within the Torah itself as to the same story. And so the rabbis do a lot of work to try and reconcile the two stories or try and figure out what it is that the Torah is trying to teach us through that. But it seems from a very basic reading of it, this doesn't seem like it was a, divinely given document all in one fell swoop on Mount Sinai. I'll just say that, you know, it's uh, Bruch Spinoza, you know, who said it's clearer than the noonday, noonday sun that Moses did not write the Torah. And he took what, you know, Ibn Ezra was winking at and he started developing what we call the documentary hypothesis, JEPD, the ones that you're referencing. It seems so clear that that is the case. And I will just say at this point, even Bava Batra admits that the last 12 lines of Deuteronomy couldn't have been written by Moses because it's about his death. And so there's some little chink in the armor there as well. But all of this strengthens Torah to me, which we, we can get to a little bit. Right. I was going to say, so should we now, should we all say we're all frauds and click off the podcast and just Well, let me just say jobs? too that Isaac Mayer Weiss, who founded Hebrew Union College um, in the 1800s, said no rabbi should learn the documentary hypothesis. The Torah was given on Sinai by God. And that was the fundamental premise of all American rabbis, which eventually became reform rabbis, but fascinating that that was the premise right then. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't taught in JTS, what, till the 70s or something like that? 60s, 70s, something like that? Yeah, oh, 100%. It's, this, is, this is a very hard thing to, to absorb and stomach, but, you know, look, I think we have to face... I think we have to, as religious leaders, look at facts and look at the truth and, and understand. And, 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 and so... Again, what I would say is we're not going to turn off the podcast right now. We could easily, you know, what, were we all frauds? Why are we all doing this? And if we're all saying that the Torah didn't, didn't factually be written explicitly every single detail of it by God on Mount Sinai, then what are we doing? Like, like I don't eat at most restaurants in the Twin Cities. Like, I, I don't, I've not gone to millions of things. In, like, why do I keep Shabbat? Why do I, why do I do kosher? Why do I do all these things that we do or all the sacrifices we make for our Judaism? We've dedicated our lives to teaching Torah, right? So then why, why do we do it? Right. What is what is the Torah, right? And why is it so important? Um, and 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 most importantly, does it come from God, right? Does this sort of say can it still be holy in this regard? Um, so what we're going to do, I think, in in our next uh, little segment here is that this is a very personal question because I think all of us, none of us, have exactly the same theologies on this, and you know. You don't, you don't have to have one particular theology on this. That's what's beautiful about Judaism, is that you can have a plurality of different ways to think about this. And I think it's great that we, we disagree on this, or we, we think differently about this, each of us. So what we're going to go do is each of us, and like, how do we deal with this issue? How do we deal maybe with this problem? And how how is it actually empowering? Because I think in some ways it's empowering for all of us. Um, and how do we how do we sort of deal with it? How do we find holiness in this text, even um, with this this factual sort of idea? Rabbi Spilker, would you like to go first as our guest? Well, I will go first because you invited me to. But I would love to hear you first, and then I can retort. No, you first. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, 
I, you know, let me just say from the outset. So if we're saying that the Torah is has these historic imprints and we can see the time periods that it's coming from and that's where the words are coming from and not a theological premise that God gave it at one moment, one might think that this pulls the rug out from under Judaism or our understanding of Torah, and it does not. So I would just say the best way for me to describe my sense of what this is all about is I, be- I belong to the minimalist school of revelation, which is, and I've heard this um, from my teacher, Rabbi uh, Larry Kushner, who quoted Rabbi Mendel Torm of Ribbonov, uh, who says that the only thing that was revealed on Sinai, and there was a historic moment where there was a we-thou in a Buber sense, a we-thou moment where there was an encounter with God that was so profound that we have it recorded to this day and we refer back to it and we can say that we were at Sinai Sinai. And that we know how rare it is to have a we-thou experience where we all are experiencing something in the same kind of profound encounter kind of way. And in that moment, what we um, hear from this rabbi is that all that was revealed is the Aleph from the Ten Commandments, the very beginning of Revelation, which is the opening, the glutteral scop of the larynx, inaudible sound, and everything else is our human interpretation. And Rabbi Heschel calls this, all of Torah, he says, is Midrash. Um, and again, Midrash is one level. Neil Gilman from your school, from Jewish Theological Seminary, still to me is the best articulator of my view of all of this in his book, Sacred Fragments, which is it's all myth. And myth does not mean not true. In fact, it means even more profoundly true, meaning for 3,000 years, we've been talking about the same story and reading our lives into it, even though it was, quote-unquote, made up. But if we've been saying it for generation after generation, and it was our best articulation of what God demanded of us, and we have tested it through time and through tribulation, it has such significance to our lives and allows us to live what are holy, connected lives. Beautiful. I love that. I'm in, very Kaplonian in some ways. It's holy because it's ours, right? It's our folkways. It's our tradition. It's it's what we have and we've passed on and talked about for thousands of years. So that's, I think, very beautiful. I'll, I'll say to you, like, what what is the value of that moment of revelation? Like, it, it, it must have been one hell of a guttural stop, right? Like that, like that. There was so much there in that 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 that, that moment. Like, what is that moment, and and how does that how does that connect to the Torah in your sense? You know, it, I don't have an answer that is clear about it because the myth is more important than even the historical experience of that guttural stop. I mean, ultimately, it's just the way we tell the story of that moment. But how many moments of a people are there? I mean. Most religions have stories of revelation based on a person, Jesus, Buddha, we, or Zoroaster, we have a story about an entire people. And when we come to Shavuot, we are recreating that moment of the one time where we literally were one. And so that is such a profound notion that it's not about an individual journey, but it's a collective people's journey. Right. That's my favorite part. That's my favorite part about our revelation. It's communal, just as you said. It was, and famously, was the Kuzari, a famous book by uh, Yehuda Alevi, a famous uh, philosopher and poet um, from the Middle Ages, who said that's actually the reason why we couldn't have been lying about the Revelation Torah, because how could six hundred thousand people be lying? Right? Someone would have at some point said, "Well, no, you're. I didn't. I didn't see that. I didn't see that." But the fact that all six hundred thousand people said, "No, we we experienced that," and you know, that's very different than one person saying, "I experienced something." They could possibly. 
not tell that truthfully in that way. But if I can just add too, then, and it doesn't detract in any level from the holiness of the letters, the words, the actual Torah scroll, the 304,805 letters of a Torah, even though we extrapolate from that to be 600,000 to the numbers of people, because each letter is holy and powerful. But there's a reason that the Sassoon Torah uh, Codex, rather, that was just auctioned off yesterday for $32 million is people are spending that kind way. of money because <laughs> we, we, we want to touch the text. And the fact that these letters and the words have not changed for thousands of years is exhilarating. Beautiful. And is that... What is the root? What is the source of the letter's holiness? Like, why, 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 why is it holy if it doesn't specifically come from God, as you said? Then, what is the root of its holy? Is it because it's been there that whole time? Is it because it's been part of our conversation? What for you is there? It's the relationships. It's the people. It's the people who've read that letter the same way and touched it and seen their lives in it, and therefore we we turn that letter into a human being, and we we learn from that the sense of compassion we should have for each other. Wonderful. Ah. Oh. I really, I love that your 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 theology is so relational. It's so so much about connection to previous generations and other people. I just love that. I really appreciate that. So I want to ask too. I mean, if if in your understanding, all of Torah is midrash, or all of Torah was was written by human beings and has a level of holiness to it because of its place in our people's continuous history. Um, what do you do with the really hard parts of Torah? Like, what do you do with the parts that feel like, oh yeah, this is very much reflective of a morality of a certain time and place, but doesn't reflect where we are today. Like, what do you do with those parts? Well, if I find it a little easier to contextualize it in its history and therefore use another part of Torah of value to trumpet. Um, and so if we are created in the image of God, that means I'm going to read parts of Leviticus differently. Um, so, I don't have to go through the Talmudic exercise of the rebellious son who and we've spent, spent 60 pages to write that part away, although I loved it and spent six weeks in Jerusalem studying that and it was a high point in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I take it all seriously mm-hmm. and nothing should be ignored. Uh, and particularly because people will use those words for ill. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Rabbi Rachel. Hmm. Well, um, Rachel magic. what is my theology of revelation? I mean, I think and this sounds a little silly after this beautiful, um, this beautiful, uh, <laughs> understanding that Rabbi Spilker shared with us. I think my, my understanding can best be, uh, summarized in the phrase, don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where Rabbi Marcus and I could not be more different. <laughs> we could not be more different. But, How are we married again? But that's often the case. Sometimes, you know, people will come to me as a rabbi and, and like come with such, and, and I respect their journey of such, such angst of, there's this part of tefillah, there's this part of prayer or this part of the Bible that I'm just really struggling with. And how do you reconcile and how do you, I don't, I don't know. I just don't have it in me. I'm just kind of like, I'm okay with the cognitive dissonance. I'm okay with the idea. I'm okay with understanding that Torah is 100% perfect and divine and holy and from God and that it was written in a particular time and place by human beings. Um, and, and I just can hold those two ideas in my head at the same time and be okay with it. Um, so, and you know, so Jewish <laughs> in some ways. Um, I just, I just uh, served on a panel for rabbinical students and I had this experience where one of them was such angst. It was a panel about 
prayer and how rabbis out in the field handle prayer. And, and it was such angst of like, what do you do with this part of the Amidah that I just can't reconcile with my personal theology? And I was kind of like, eh, I say it. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just, so, you know, I like, that's just kind of how my understanding of Judaism always has been. I think it's just a, it's a major difference between you and I. Um, but I, you know, I think for some, somehow, and I think Rabbi Artson teaches this as well um, to his rabbinical students that, you know, that's, that's our task is to believe that the Torah is perfect and holy and divine and that it's, in, that it's valuable and that it is uh, written by human beings in a particular time and place and to be able to hold both of those. Um, I mean, I think a distinction perhaps between Rabbi Spilker and myself is, is our um, relationship with those really hard texts. And I think that that's kind of a, um, a point that's, that's super challenging with, um, with the kind of don't sweat the small stuff theology that I just laid out because some of it isn't small stuff, right? Some of it's really, really big stuff. And the, the verse in, in Leviticus that Rabbi Spilker was referencing of, you know, a man shall not lie with another man. It's an abomination. Um, that's certainly not small stuff, right? That's a verse that has been used to, to inflict incredible harm and trauma onto, uh, onto human beings in our lives. Um, and so how do I, how do I really sit and hold that and say that that is perfectly perfect and divine? Um, it's really hard. It's, you know, I'm not really sure what to, I'm not really sure what to do with it. It's kind of still holding that cognitive dissonance of we're still going to read it on Yom Kippur. We, we don't change the Torah reading that we, that we read on Yom Kippur afternoon. We still read that verse. Um, but, before we do that Torah reading, either Rabbi Marcus or myself says publicly in front of the entire congregation on Yom Kippur, we're about to read something that we don't agree with. We're about to read something in our holy, perfect, divine Torah that we cannot make sense of, that we think is horrible, that we don't follow in our own lives and practice, that we love people in our community who are engaged in these relationships. We will marry you. We will name your children. We will welcome you with open arms into our community. And we're still going to read it because it's still our holy Torah. And like being able to hold both of those things, I mean, that's part of why we always joke that conservative Judaism is such a small sliver and growing smaller because it's a really hard place to be. It's not an easy place to be in this kind of gray area of holding both of those things. Um, And I think people on on both sides would say we're not going far enough in either direction and we're not going far enough in our love and respect for Torah or far enough in our love and respect for human beings. Um, And that's still kind of the spot that that I find myself in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's particularly challenging because, I mean, observing Judaism takes a lot of effort. I mean, there are so many restaurants. I I, I love eating out at restaurants and I cannot eat eat out at any of them, mostly in the city because of Kashrut. I've missed... I can't be a full musician because I can't play on Shabbat. Like, I can't play on the weekend, and I'm a jazz trauma player, and it's really painful. Just countless sacrifices over and over again that I've made for Judaism that have made my life not perfect, like, have made it challenging much of the time. So, like, how do you make those sacrifices if, like, you know, if you haven't at all, like, you just kind of, that's just out there. Like, how does that work for you? Where is that strength coming from? Like, why do it then? Is it because the tour is perfect? Like, why? Well, that's where the difference is. That's the small stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's the small stuff. Huh? That's the small that's stuff. That's the small stuff. Why right, the, said that? The parts that are inflicting this real harm on people, that's the stuff that I, that does keep me up at night. But the stuff that's like that that internal angst of... Bacon cheeseburgers over, are not small stuff, it's, Rachel, okay? That's the small stuff. That's, I don't the think stuff you, that's the stuff I don't have that internal angst. I, you know, I'm just kind of um, satisfied with with 
the level of observance and I'm just kind of satisfied with the idea that, you know, yeah, there's some anachronistic parts of the Torah. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's still perfect. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Oh, it, seems like, it sounds like now we're getting into a little bit, obviously, praxis and how do we follow Torah and halakha and all of that, which is a little bit different also just from theology. Where does it all come from? Right. But, I mean, if you're re- reading Leviticus 18, you're also reading the verse, v'chai behem, and you shall live by them, which is such a profoundly beautiful text about that the Torah is supposed to give us life and not let us sweat the small stuff. I mean, that's the point. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, and I also think... I mean, I guess the, just to clarify, the don't sweating the small stuff doesn't mean that I'm not observant of the small details of Jewish law. It's the opposite, that I am observant of them all. I just don't kind of sweat the cognitive dissonance that sometimes they lead to. But, um, I mean, I think that the other part that I want to bring up is the oral Torah part of like, can we believe that oral Torah was really revelation and was really given by God? Um, I mean, I think that part I hold a little bit less of the dissonance. That part I'm kind of like, no, I don't believe. <laughs> I, I just don't nope. believe that. I don't believe it. But I do kind of believe it because even today with contemporary rabbis, like so often, like Rabbi Tali Adler from Hadar will post something on Facebook, post one of her like drashes or one of her chedishes, one of her, um, New, new understandings of Torah. And even through Facebook, <laughs> like the least holy mechanism in the world, even through that medium, I'm like, this is, this is revelation. Like it just blows your mind. This is amazing. This is God coming out into the world. So if I can see that in contemporary Torah today, certainly we can see that in the oral Torah of our ancient tradition. So, I mean, I think that part for sure it's holy and divine and causes new revelations of God's face into the world. That I wholeheartedly believe. Um, but I, I don't struggle as much with the cognitive dissonance of with every word of the Mishnah written by God that I can, I'm, I'm comfortable just kind of putting to the side. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I mean, yeah, I, I'm glad it works for you. I mean, I really... <laughs> <laughs> so Minnesota. Oh, that's interesting for that's you. Interesting. <laughs> no, I, I, lo- I really do love this about you because I, one thing that I love about you is you're so practical minded and you're always like, what are the direct issues that are facing people's lives? And like, that's what we should be concerned about. And I always, that's why I love uh, being married to you in some ways and, and working with you is, is that like we, you constantly bring me into the real, the real things. Um, so I really appreciate that. That being said, is that your theology as well? <laughs> that is not. My, I, I would say there, there are, there's definitely a piece of certainly there's a piece of cognitive dissonance in my theology, of course. Um, but I, I, I call my my approach really the phenomenological approach. Um, is that when I learn Torah, I have the feeling or the phenomenon. I'm experiencing the phenomenon that it is from God, that it is divine. Um, when I learn it, it. it, it teaches me divine truths about the world. It, and, it, and not only that, it, it connects me to God. I feel a connection to God when I learn it. Um, so therefore, for me, it is a divine document. And in, in, in that way, the historical question is unimportant, right? Uh, you know, yes, is there, is, there, is there some cognitive dissonance? Maybe. Um, but really, it's just not important to me. I, I just don't in the end, what's really important is that when I learn Torah, I feel God's presence. That that seems to be much more important. It's like, do I need to know that the color of red is real, that it really is truly there, or is more important that I'm seeing red, right? Like, I'm experiencing the color red. I think the experience is probably more important, um, especially after Kant um, and after much of uh, proved basically that, you know, we can't have an objective, we can't look at the, the world in an ontological way as human beings, that we can only look at it through our, you know, 
perspective, which is, you know, uh, not the actual way the world actually is. We all see it through our particular perspective. So if we can't see the world as it ontologically truly is, then what does it really matter anyway where it's truly from if we can never experience it anyway, right? Um, so the, really what matters is the phenomenal. That's the, what I call the phenomenological approach. But it's also a utilitarian approach. Like, why do I believe in the Torah? Is because it works, right? I've seen in my own life... It, through learning Torah, through immersing myself in it, through doing mitzvot, I've become a much better person. Um, it's connected me to God. Do I have a lot of work to do? Of course. Um, but it has connected me to God over and over again. It's transformed my life over and over and over again. I've seen its power. And that's why I think in Jewish communities, it, it, I really think we should take a lesson from some evangelical Christian communities. We should give poor testimony. We should talk about how the Torah has transformed our lives. We should talk about our experiences where we felt like we've encountered God. Like, I, I think that would help people because the experience is what is so important. Like, it's so... In some ways, it's so individual, it's so individualistic, it's so authentic, it's so existent. It's so much of what makes modern America modern America today, um, and we, but yet we don't talk about our experiences in that regard. And for me, that's what it's all about. If you are a Temple of Aaron member and you have a testimony of how Torah has changed your life, come find us. We may tap you for Rosh Hashanah this year. Testify. Oh, it's going to be amazing. Um, yeah, exactly. I think that would be great. Um, and, and number two, I think I really take a lot of... I take a lot of I take a lot of comfort from the Zohar's approach to Torah, which is the idea. And what it's is a, the Zohar? That is a good question. The Zohar was a 13th century text um, of a mystical text um, of, of basically uh, interpretation of the Torah, uh, and that kind of flipped the Torah in its head in a, way, a lot of ways, uh, changed a lot of very mystical way of, of looking at the text. Um, but regardless, one thing that this text called the Zohar says um, is that there's a, 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 a Torah that it calls the Torah of Tiferet, or the Torah, I would just, I'm standing on one foot without explaining all of Kabbalah, um, the Torah of, uh, you know, this world, and then there's the heavenly Torah, right, which it calls... Um, a Torah Chochmah, right? Or Torah Minah Shamayim, right? And what it means by that is that we have the, the Torah of this world, which are these stories and, you know, did my ox bore your cow and this guy named Moses and this guy named Abraham and all the Rivka and all these stories and the, the crazy things they did. And that's the Torah of this world. That's kind of like the way we talk to each other in this world. But that's only a lavush. That's only a clothing on the real Torah, the, the heavenly Torah, that the, 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 the actual revelation of God that actually can't ever be said through language, right? Language only is, is, is by nature and in its essence limiting. So anything that we can actually speak is, is by nature not completely authentic and real. It's not really describing authentically and completely truly the experience itself because experience is beyond language, right? And so what, they, what the Zohar says is that there's this Torah Mina Shamaim or Torah Chochmah, which, are, which I at least intuit as the values and the ideas behind the Torah, that are animated through those stories. And that actually is the Torah, right? The, the stories and the laws are just a way of getting to that. those ideas behind it. The laws, the practices, the mitzvot, all those things help us to inculcate those ideas, those values, those ways of living into our lives, but they're not, they're just the media. They're not the actual Torah, the content, right? They're just the media, which is really, really important. They're the way, as human beings living in finite reality, that we can experience it, right? Not 
the actual essence, the ontological essence of what they actually are. Um, and so I, I, I take a lot of comfort, and that's when I, you know, there's a lot of times the Midrash says, you know, God used the Torah to create the world as the blueprint of creation. Like, how do you read those Midrashim, right? How, how do you read that the Torah is the pillar of the world? Really? The stories about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac are the stories that God uses the blueprint to create the world? Right? Really? Like, that's, that's the blueprint? Like, it, makes no, it sort of makes no sense in its literal imagination. But if you take it from the Zohar's perspective, right, that it's the values that we learn through those stories, right? It's, it's, it's the, the lessons behind them that are the, the foundation of the world. That gets more to actually what the Midrash seems to actually be saying about the Torah, right? That actually can seem like a blueprint of creation, right? And that feels true to my experience. When I learn Torah, I feel like I'm unearthing the foundations of, of creation and the world and, and the secrets of life and all those big things, right? And I don't think it's the stories of, uh, you know, Moses and Aaron and whatever, but it's the ideas behind them. For, so for me, the Torah is a media. It's a media that helps me get to, it's a lavouche, it's a clothing that helps me get to the ideas beneath it, which, which, which I think informs everything uh, that I do. And, and for me, I read it in that direction. That's why it's divine. Right? It's divine because it leads me to holiness. It leads me to God. And because it leads me to God in a completely unique way that nothing else in my life had I have ever experienced, therefore it's from God. That's good enough for me. So beautiful. And it's such a mystical way of approaching the text. And it's, this whole conversation is reminding me of Pardes, some of the different approaches to Torah, that you can come to the divinity in different ways. I'm coming to it much more relationally to the people and think about ancestors in that kind of way. You're thinking about it in a fundamental, phenomenological kind of way that is gorgeous. And But we're getting, to, as you said, kept coming back to the values about living a better life that we're going to get to because of it. Mm-hmm. We all get to the same place, I think, which yeah. is wonderful. And that's what Judaism is all about, right? We're all going, we're all trying to become better people. We're all trying to become closer to God. We're, and we, we might say that in different languages, right? But, you know, in the, it's okay to have different theologies because if we're all aiming towards the same direction or in the same different way, it's, it's actually the most Jewish thing in the whole entire world. And if I can just say, too, the cognitive dissonance, uh, Rabbi Rachel, that you were bringing up, too, is so, as I said, so Jewish because the paradox is something we feel so comfortable with. We can sit with paradox from Rabbi Akiva and down. I mean, we can sit with it and find that we can have questions like that that, f- that challenge the very fundamental pieces of this and not be um, thrown off our game. Mm. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And in this conversation is reminding me of that famous story of Moshe coming to down to visit the uh, Beit Midrash of Rabbi Akiva. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, there's a story that Moses, God brings Moses down to, to visit the, the study hall of Rabbi Akiva and Moses is distraught because he doesn't understand a word that is happening. Like it all seems so foreign to what's going on. Um, and he's so upset. Like, how is this, how is this still my tradition? How is this the legacy that I've left behind until Rabbi Akiva teaches? And all of this we learned from Moses, um, and the, the Torah that Moses was given. And, and then Moses is given a lot of comfort that, okay, the, the way we've gotten to there, the conversations we're having have evolved. We've, we've come a long way. Um, but we're all kind of getting to that same source that all of it is coming back to God. Um, and a lot of what you're saying, Marcus, is um, it just reminds me of, of how Rabbi Silker opens this conversation of that science is about the the how and the and Torah is about the why. And I think that's really what you're saying, that kind of the the meets vote or the all of the 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 dressings that are on top of the Torah, that's all kind of like the how, how do we get to that? Um, but the why, that's the real Torah of like what is it that what is it the core that we're trying to un- uncover in the world. Right, but I think essential thing I wanna like stipulate here and, and just like I use the word clothing, right? 
and, and clothing is what enables us to be in the world, right? We can't really be in the world without the clothing we wear or the way we clothe ourselves. You know, we can't go anywhere without a car or, we, or a bicycle, you know, or whatever. Those are tools, clothing, what, what have you, even though they're not who we are. Yet, on the other hand, we can't actually exist without them, right? Like, if you want to say, all I want is the Torah from heaven, right, the, the, in the Zohar's language, the Torah of Chochmah, right, this upper Torah, you can't actually get there. Like, you can't have the values, you can't have it without the Torah. You can't have it without the stories. You can't have it without the mitzvot and the practices and the this. It, it, it's, at least in my theology, right, um, you know, you, you need the tools, right? And, and I think there's a big temptation to say, well, if I don't really, if it's not really about the tools and it's not really about the, why do I need the Torah? Why do I need the stories? Why do I need all these things? And it's, no, you need them all. Like you, and it's the same thing with all your theology. Like you can't connect in, in Rabbi Spilker's beautiful theology, right? It's, it's, you can't have those relational moments of connection. Those stories, although they might not be factually true or whatever they may be, they are the connection point between two different ages of people throughout time, right? And this might be a place where we will get to discriminate, which we don't have to get there, but the clothing, I think, can change. You know, So you can be in Rabbi Akiva's classroom in Menuchot 29b and see the fact that though he doesn't recognize what they're wearing, and he says it came all the way from Sinai. Or we can change our clothing from 16th century Poland and still be Jewish, and that is one of the things I think that has been a truism also of Judaism. Right. I mean, look, I think, I think theoretically I would agree with you, but but practically I wouldn't, right? Because like it's dangerous, right? Like once once you start saying I have the power to just change the clothing or change how do I know that that clothing or that tool or that media is actually gonna get me to the value? Right? And and, and the reason is because because I can't define the value. Right? That's the scary part. It's like we don't actually if you ask me what are those, what is that heavenly Torah? It's undescribable. I can't say what it is. And I actually don't know what it is. I can't even wrap my head around it. All I can do is experience it. Right? It's beyond my understanding. So if I can't define it, then I certainly can't define a different tool to get there because I I can't even define what getting there even means. Right? So for me, like the media and the lavouche is mysterious in some ways. It's like doing a mitzvah and putting on tefillin. I don't understand why putting on tefillin connects me to God. I don't get it. I wouldn't have designed it myself that way. And so therefore, like, there's something very mysterious about, about doing it. And so I, I put it on. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but, it, but eventually it connects me. I, I have faith that that is going to connect me to God. And, and I think you have to walk into mitzvot and Torah with that faith that it connects you to God. And maybe that's also different as well. Like for me, when I look at problematic texts in the Torah, I look at it that even though it says a, a man, the, the verse says a man and another man shall not lie uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting the verse wrong, right? A man and a man shall not lie together. It's an abomination for the Lord. As right? it does with a woman. Right, as it does with, yeah, right? So, like, factually, I would say I disagree with that, right, and the ramifications of that, and, and I think it's hateful. I think there's somewhere in me that says there is some deep wisdom hidden in there that I have faith that's there, and it doesn't mean that a man can't sleep with another man. There's some deeper meaning. There's something in there that's, that's there to teach me. I, I, I don't just... And that's why I continue to read it and conserve it, right? That's where the conservative Judaism comes from, right? I'm conserving it because I have faith that, that it's in there, right? And I don't know, maybe that's different for you, Rabbi Spilker. I, it is a little different for me because I have much more quick to be able to say it belongs to a time and place that no longer uh, applies to me. And on the other hand, I lift it up and say they, they knew not from 
um, uh, relationships between men that could be uh, life-giving and holy and mature because they got married too young and they, this was only about breaking up marriage. I mean, I can go all those different places, but ultimately I can set it aside and say, I do not follow it. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and maybe, and then, look, I think I have a very unique kind of conservative theology in that, like, I can also set it aside and say, I don't follow it. Right? Many of my conservative colleagues would say about that line, well, I have to interpret it some way. I have to interpret it differently. I don't do any of that baloney. I just say, there are certain, there are certain, there's like a handful of things in the Torah that I don't follow. Right? I pray three times a day. I keep kosher. I do all the things. But there are a couple of things, right? Like it says, you know, women shouldn't be leaders in, 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 the, in the halacha, that women shouldn't be public leaders. I disagree with that. I don't feel like I have to interpret it differently. And I just could say, nope, it's wrong, right? Because I'm a sovereign individual. I live in enlightenment. And I ask the same thing, by the way, for my Christian colleagues and my Muslim colleagues and my Hindu colleagues and everybody else, right? If something is just humanely terrible to someone and takes away their whole entire humanity, right? Like, I think you shouldn't follow that part. And that's why I'm not orthodox, even though I'm very, you know, seemingly punctilious with observance. Um, that makes sense. But that's a very different theology, I think, than most conservative rabbis, I would say. That's almost more of a reform theology, I would say, probably. Maybe elements of reform, right? In 1976, we had a centennial perspective in Reform Judaism that said the world has finally understood what is true that we've articulated, which is that we believe in informed choice. Right. Um, that people will make their own decisions with all this information that we're sharing with them. That they're they're going to figure it out. Um, and I am Kaplanian. You referenced that earlier in the sense that I do believe that we should not individually think that we are alone. It's not me autonomous from anybody else. It's me in relationship to God, to community, and Torah. And it is that um, trilogy, that trinity, if you would, that brings me a sense <laughs> oh. of who I am. <laughs> it's not where I was trying to go. It's just what came out... Um, <laughs> What comes out, comes out. <laughs> what stays here is here. Anyway, this has been a great conversation. I think this has been wonderful. It's really been wonderful getting to talk to you, Rabbi Spilker, and really having you here and just getting a different perspective. And I really, I want to highlight this, that like, whether you think like me, or you think like Rabbi Rachel, or you think like Rabbi Spilker about the Torah, or none of the above, by the way, that's all good. It's all good. What we want you to do is merge yourself in it, is to confront it. As a Jew, it's your inheritance, right? And to, to, to take it, to use it, to look into it, to study it, and, and figure out what's right for you is, 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 so, is so essential. Um, all, of those, all of the perspectives I think we talked about today are just so, are really, really important. You know, I, 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 before I go on, I really do want to go back to Rabbi Rachel's point about cognitive, because I don't think we give it enough license, right? It's okay if it also just doesn't make sense, right? It's okay if, if you don't know like what the theology is or how it connects together, but you just want to do it or you just do it because, or you don't understand why you do it. That's actually okay. You don't have to figure out everything. You could just do it, which is, I just, I, don't, I didn't say that. So I wanted to say that to you. And if I could just add Rabbi Lenny Kravitz, who is one of my teachers, he says, why do I do it? I'm a Jew. <laughs> just like at the end of this, you don't need an hour podcast. Just do it. That'll be the second part of my theology. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just do it. <laughs> Right, right, 100%. 100%. And Rabbi Marcus, if I could just say that this has been such a joy to be a part of this conversation, and I am grateful to what you and Rabbi Rachel are doing for our St. Paul Jewish community, lifting up the conversation, bringing Torah to our community, and doing this L'Shem Shemayim for the sake of heaven. Thank you. Well, we look forward to having you here again, Rabbi Spilker. Uh, Hopefully you'll come back as a guest on our podcast again. It will be wonderful. 
if people enjoyed this conversation, they should join us on at Tisha B'Av, uh, where the St. Paul Jewish community is coming together at Mount Zion, um, graciously hosted by Mount Zion this year. And we'll be having a, another really wonderful conversation among the, among the various clergy. So people should come to that. And so people should come to that on July 26th uh, at Mount Zion in the evening. Uh, we'll be having another really wonderful conversation uh, among all of us. So you should save the date and, and find your way there. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I just, I, I, I do want to thank, obviously, Rabbi Spilker for coming today. Really appreciate it. I always want to thank our producer, uh, uh, Jesse Ulrich from Rant 9 Productions. Really does a wonderful job. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, of course, I want to thank Colleen Deeker and Jeffrey Baldinger uh, for our theme song and Jeffrey for our, our new uh, name. And uh, with the new name, we, we are going to have a new email. It's going to be uh, trtmpodcast at gmail.com, right? TRTM, they're rabbis and they're married. Well, they're rabbis, they're married, uh, and trtmpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please do, that email is already live, so you can email us already at that email address. And always remember to comment, rate, subscribe, <laughs> review, and tell your friends about us. The old-fashioned way, you can actually tell your friends about this podcast. And seriously, nothing makes us happier than when you come up to us and tell us that you're listening to our podcast. It really, it's just made such a joy. So thank you for everyone who's told us you're listening. Keep telling us. It's really, it's so much fun to, to be connecting with you in this way. Until next time. Celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus.